You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. My history can be up in your I know nothing. That was a response, supposedly, that a certain group of urban politicians in the fourth and fifth decades of the 19th century in America would use if they were asked about their prejudices towards immigrants, particularly those of the Catholic religion. The dominant party in New York and most urban areas of America at the time, the Democratic Party, had become dominant with the help of Irish Catholics, the nation's largest immigrant group to date. And so a new quiet splinter group, first called American Republicans, but popularly known as Know-Nothings, formed. The moniker was not really embraced by members of the groups, and it's somewhat unflattering was actually created by its critics, frustrated that the group focused on the red meat issues of nativism, played on fears of Catholic immigrants, but refused to answer the critical question of the time, that of slavery. Contrary to what's commonly thought, there was no, quote, know-nothing party. In fact, for most of its life, it was not a party at all. It was a loose arrangement of politicians in the other main parties at the time, some Democrat, some Whig, it would call the American Party, the American Republican Party, and the Native American Party in different states. They wanted the reversal of all immigration and naturalization laws, and to have a federal law banning immigrants from holding public office and making a continued residence of 21 years in America the requirement of citizenship. The movement originated in New York in 1843, became a national party in 1845. In the spring of 1854, they carried Boston, Salem, and other New England cities. They swept the state of Massachusetts in the fall 1854 elections, their biggest victory. The Whig candidate in Philadelphia, editor Robert Conrad, soon revealed himself as a know-nothing. He promised to crack down on crime, close saloons on Sundays, and to appoint only native-born Americans to office. He won in a landslide. Know Nothings also elected the mayor of San Francisco, and in spring 1855, Levi Boone was elected mayor of Chicago for the Know Nothings, and he banned non-natives from city jobs. Know Nothingism was strong in urban Baltimore, where fire squads rivaled for control of the city's fire operations. The Know Nothings would use fire gangs to watch ballots at the polls. These were the days of open voting, and if someone brought up a ballot opposed to the Know Nothing candidates, the thugs would refuse to let them in, threaten them, or in worst cases, beat them. 
with these gangs controlling the polls, very few Germans in Baltimore the surrounding towns voted from 1854 to 1858. After the local and state elections of 1854, the Know-Nothings took 12 seats in the Maryland House of Delegates and several mayoral races, including Baltimore. By all objective measures, this was an extremely successful and growing party in America, had great appeal. But the roots of its downfall would begin in its most dastardly incident, its most public grab for power. On the night of Monday, March 6, 1854, between the hours of 1 and 2 a.m., the night watchman for the then unconstructed Washington Monument was standing guard. A group of four to ten men rushed out of the darkness, surrounded his shack, and piled stones against his door. The intruders then stole a stone from the grounds, loaded it into a handcart. The watchman could not explain to the investigating committee why he waited almost two hours before sounding the alarm or why he failed to drive off the intruders with a shotgun that he had access to. No arrests were made, and the stone was never recovered. But it's widely known that the perpetrators were a chapter of know-nothings. These know-nothings had no problem with a stone, of course, but they did have a problem with who donated it. The Monument Society needed cash, and so they invited governments, municipalities, even Indian tribes, to contribute stones to the monument. Stones came from everywhere, and among the stones received was one from Pope Pius IX. It was a block of historic marble from the Temple of Concord in Rome, and it was approximately 3 feet long, 10 inches thick, and 18 inches high. The gift infuriated the American party. Know-nothings vowed that the Pope's stone, as it came to be known, would never be part of the Washington Monument. Not only did the Know-nothings steal the stone, but they also took over the Monument Society group of 750 members of the Know-Nothings joined the Washington National Monument Society and then elected 17 of their own as the officers. And for a period of about three years, they had effective control of the Washington Monument. Construction on the monument was continued by these Know-Nothings, and they succeeded in laying about 26 feet of masonry. But the marble they used had been rejected by the master mason and most of it ended up having to be replaced. The shoddy work, the slow completion of the monument, and their inability to raise any significant funds tainted the know-nothings in a very public way. If they couldn't govern a monument, how could they govern a country? Indeed, 1854 and 1855 would prove to be the electoral peak of know-nothings and nativism as an issue. In 1856, the Know-Nothings would organize as a National American Party and run a former president, Millard Fillmore, as their candidate. He was flatly defeated, obtaining only the eight votes in Maryland, where immigrants were completely barred from voting. Millard Fillmore, seen at the time as a statesman and a compromiser for his work on the 1850 Missouri Compromise and his close association with Henry Clay, suffered in reputation at the time, and still suffers now in reputation among presidents because of his association with the know-nothings. The party also could not take a realistic stand on the slavery issue, and by 1860, the party didn't exist. The successful Republicans of 1860 appealed to immigrants, and by 1864, both the Republican and Democratic platforms would outdo each other in welcoming immigrants, both ensuring protection of citizens, whether native or foreign-born. 
a rejection of the know-nothing policies of the decade past. And so here we are in 2006, and another group of politicians, in this case, a majority of House Republicans, support an anti-immigration policy and, and support using it as an issue, while their president has other ideas. But when the White House asks for their position on the issue, they certainly don't say they know nothing. They have spoken out in public against the White House and the Republican Senate plan for guest workers. After a summer recess of talking to citizens and looking at summer poll numbers, GOP House members see immigration as a clear winner, possibly the only hope they have of drawing attention away from the bloodshed in Iraq. But as the short-lived Know-Nothing Party found out, immigration is a powerful, piercing sword in American politics. It can cut across party lines and build strange and amazing coalitions. It can turn unwinnable races around. It can make people forget about economic problems as they find a non-influential, non-voting scapegoat to blame their troubles on. But history also tells us that the sword of nativism has a double edge, and even the most careful practitioners of the issue, in some cases, have ended up getting cut. History is the work of the shoveler, and each layer you dig adds more understanding and more questions. In a previous podcast, we went over the immigration issue in general in America, and we established a couple things. One, while today we draw distinctions between illegal and legal immigrants, the concept of an illegal immigrant would make no sense to Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. It only began in the 1920s. We also established that America is always, always has been at a zigzag with immigration between restriction and openness. And we established that presidents seem a little more likely than congressmen who are running for election every two years to be for immigration. In this podcast, I would like to focus more on the use of immigration as an issue, as a wedge issue in politics. A wedge issue, of course, is a social issue designed to distract and motivate voters. Based on their own statements, Republican House members in 2006 see the immigrant issue as a strategic bonus for them. And it may well help them in some districts, although polls in July of 2006 showed illegal immigration coming up only fifth as an issue for American voters. Party platforms tell an interesting story of the history of immigration as an issue. The Republican Party platform of 1860 welcomed immigrants. And the platform of the same party 16 years later asked for an investigation into the immigration of Chinese workers. The Democratic Party throughout history has been a little kinder towards immigrants, but it also has a history of keeping up with the Republicans on the issue. By 1880, the Democratic platform said, no more Chinese immigration, except for travel, education, and foreign commerce, and even that carefully guarded. And indeed, in 1882, Congress would pass the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned further immigration from China. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. And in my last podcast, I said Chester Arthur did nothing to stop it. And that was incorrect. That was unfair to Chet. 
President Arthur vetoed the legislation, and he was overridden. The next significant politician to pick up the sword of nativism was James G. Blaine, a Republican from Maine. After the crushing defeat of the Republicans by the Democratic Party in 1874, Republicans were quick to drop the pro-immigrant stance of their party and return to nativism as an issue. James G. Blaine, a man who wanted to be president, proposed the Blaine Amendment of 1876, legislation that would bar the use of public money for religious purposes in schools. Well, that didn't address immigration. It was obviously aimed at Catholics. Most schools were Protestant. This is a time before Supreme Court decisions banning Bibles in the schools and things like that. Most public schools were Protestant in nature. So, effectively, Blaine's amendment cut off funding of Catholic schools. Though Blaine's federal amendment was unsuccessful, many state Blaine amendments were passed. Interestingly enough, the actions of this ancient Republican have caused problems today for the Republicans who wish to institute school choice programs. Due to a scandal unrelated to his nativist stance, James G. Blaine would not become the presidential candidate in 1876, and the bland but honest Rutherford B. Hayes would enter the White House. Blaine would also wait out the 1880 election, and then he would return as the Republican Party's candidate in 1884. The race in 1884 between James G. Blaine and Grover Cleveland was tight, really involved the state of New York, who won New York, would win that election. Grover Cleveland, the Democrat, had been a decidedly underdog candidate in that election. Then, weeks before the balloting, a New York City preacher and a supporter of Blaine referred to the Democrats as the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. James Blaine was in the audience, but it's not clear that he even heard the remark, and he certainly didn't support it. The Democrats pounced on the remark. Catholics were upset and attributed the remarks to Blaine. While Blaine didn't say the line, his previous nativist stance made it difficult for him to reject it. With the loss of many Irish Catholic voters, Blaine lost New York and the election the victim of his own nativist stances. Blaine was a great speaker and a great and gifted legislator, but he would never stand again for president. Still in the latter half of the 19th century, the only laws on the books were laws banning immigration from Asia. In 1896, the Republican platform called for a ban on immigration of those who cannot read or write, whereas the Democratic Party platform was still only calling for a continued ban on Chinamen and other Asiatic races. Throughout the 20s and 30s, as the economy tightened, jobs became scarce. Both parties' platforms called for a continued limitation on immigration. That would continue until the 1960s when immigration became civil rights and a Cold War issue. Republican platform of 1960 said, immigration has been reduced to the point where it does not provide the stimulus to growth that it should and we are not fulfilling our obligation as a haven for the oppressed. 1965 Civil Rights Bill loosened up immigration, but as immigration continued, especially from the Mexican border, the issue reared its head once again. As a senator who became a governor, Pete Wilson decided to run on the support of a popular proposition 187 in California. Economic times in the early 90s were not good, and we were at least two years from the noticeable boom of the 90s. 
And that rarely bodes well for incumbent governors. Utilizing support for the anti-immigration Prop 187, Pete Wilson easily won re-election over California's Secretary of State Kathleen Brown in 1994. But there was a dark side for California Republicans. Wilson's 1994 campaign mobilized Latino groups. And the first sign of their new power was when Bob Dornan, a safe congressman from Anaheim, California, was ousted by Loretta Sanchez, a Democrat with the support of thousands of new Latino voters. By 1998, exploding anger over Proposition 187 elected Democrat Gray Davis to the governorship. Republicans were locked out of every California statewide office, and only during a recall election, when Davis was ousted, would Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger take the office. But even he and most California Republicans today would not support Pete Wilson's legislation. As governor of a large state, Pete Wilson had been a considerable force in Republican politics and a potential presidential candidate in 1996. But he was not chosen as a nominee of his party. He ended his run for the presidency early, and he's now largely seen as the source of Republican failure at the polls in California. His name is somewhat of an afterthought associated with a failed policy. If we analyze the three politicians who use nativism, uh, Millard Fillmore is a know-nothing candidate, James G. Blaine, and former California Governor Pete Wilson. There's another interesting uh, fact to look at, and that's that none of these politicians seemed personally invested in the immigration issue but rather reached a political situation that required that they use it. As a president, Millard Fillmore hadn't done anything to uh, affect Catholics. Uh, Prior to the disastrous 1874 midterm and his desire to become president, James G. Blaine had not been a significant force in nativism in the House. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. And as a senator, Pete Wilson had actually, on several occasions, asked the INS not to crack down on California businesses using illegal labor, and 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 it was uh, illegal immigrant labor, and it was later revealed that he had actually retained uh, 
a housekeeper who was an illegal alien in the 70s. For these politicians, nativism, anti-immigration, was a convenient sword to use in politics. And if you look at the GOP House members today, there hasn't been a lot of talk about immigration until we reach this 2006 midterm. Another distinction to make is that politicians that we revere and politicians that are seen by history as successful seem to have come to terms with immigration as an American fact. As Lincoln said, I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? As a nation, we begin by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it to say, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, all men are created equal except Negroes, foreigners, and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer to be emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where depotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. As Grover Cleveland vetoed a bill requiring a literacy test for immigrants, he said, a radical departure from our national policy relating to immigrants is here presented. Heretofore, we have welcomed all who come to us from other lands. We've encouraged those coming from foreign countries to cast their lot with us and join in the development of our vast domain, securing in return a share in the blessings of American citizenship. Ronald Reagan, before he became president in 1977, wondered about what he called the illegal alien fuss. Are great numbers of our unemployed really victims of the illegal alien invasion, he wrote a supporter? Or are those illegal tourists actually doing work our people won't do? One thing is certain in this hungry world, he said. No regulation or law should be allowed if it results in crops rotting in the fields for lack of harvesters. And Reagan made those comments as he was the clear leader of the right wing of his party. And then as president, in his signing statement for the 1986 immigration law, Reagan declared, the legalization provisions in this act will go far to improve the lives of a class of individuals who now must hide in the shadows without access to many of the benefits of a free and open society. Very soon, many of these men and women will be able to step into the sunlight, and ultimately, if they choose, they may become Americans. Ronald Reagan. It may well be as, that as an issue of economics, or of sociology, that the immigration, especially that originating from one country, such as that of the Mexican border, could be a problem that needs addressing, that experts should be dispatched to the issue, and proper legislation passed. But as an issue of politics, politicians using nativist or anti-immigration slogans, beware. It's a powerful sword, but one that is turned on its user time and time again. While forgotten men such as Millard Fillmore, James Blaine, and Pete Wilson use the issue to great personal effect, great American politicians knew to avoid it and instead focus on the mechanics of the issue and solutions. If today's House Republicans seek to pick up this powerful political sword that is immigration, they may gain some points from it, may help them in some districts, and in a badly needed win in this midterm. But the lesson of history is clear. There will be long-term damage. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. As a longtime foreign correspondent, 
I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off: U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.